0: Good morning. I hope you brought your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at a few passages in the book of Isaiah. Um, This morning, I'm here representing the college and career class, which meets during the Sunday school hour in the conference room right there, right around the corner. And um, I've had the privilege of being the primary teacher of that class for the last couple of years, Andy Beringer also fills in regularly um, as, as, we, as needs arise. And so uh, it's been a real privilege to, to be there with everyone. What we've been studying in this past year, we, we began by studying a, a series of songs from the Bible. If you've ever read through the Scriptures, you know that there are a number of places in the Bible where you'll be kind of in the middle of a story... <clears throat> And, and someone will break into song or there will be this little poetic interlude. And so what we did for some time was we looked at a number of those and tried to understand how those teach us what the message of the scripture really is. Uh, but what we've been doing recently is we've been studying the book of Isaiah. We're not even halfway through the book we're sort of in the second section of the book, as, as I'll show you today, but we've been uh, studying the book of Isaiah more or less chapter by chapter, not verse by verse, because it is a long book, but, but certainly chapter by chapter. So I want to begin by reading a very famous chapter, a portion of a chapter from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 6, and so if you follow along in your Bible, I'll read Isaiah 6, and then we'll pray and look at the book as a whole. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand, Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Lord, we're grateful for the time that you've given us this morning, and we're grateful for the many opportunities, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, that you give us to open your word and to study it together. We ask that as we briefly overview this remarkable text that you've given to us through the prophet Isaiah, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We ask that your spirit would be at work. We ask that you would conform us even now by your spirit to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Well, what I would like to do this morning is to just take a broad-based kind of 40,000-foot view of the book of Isaiah to show you some of what we've been studying in the class. And then, uh, time permitting, we may zero in on the chapters that we've been looking at most recently. So, end of the spring when we ended, uh, we we were in the middle of these oracles and woes against the nations. And so, we may, if we have time, we may be able to look at one of those in uh, in, in brief. First, I want to begin with an overview of the book. If you look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 1, we started in chapter 6 because that's the call of Isaiah and it's interesting to think about why it is that the call of Isaiah, the beginning of his ministry, comes six chapters into the book. And that, I think, tells us something about the book, and we'll get to that. But if you look at verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 1, here's how it begins. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now those may be familiar names to you, or they may be new to you, but I want to just overview who these kings were, when they reigned, and what their reigns consisted of, because I think that's significant to understanding the context of Isaiah. We begin with Uzziah. And you remember in chapter 6, what we just read, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, that Isaiah receives this great vision of the Lord seated on a throne in the temple. If you look back at what the scriptures tell us about the reign of Uzziah in 2 Kings 15 and in 2 Chronicles 26, what we learn about Uzziah was that for the most part, he was a godly king in Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. The nation of Israel had been divided into two. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And Uzziah is a king in Judah. Isaiah is a prophet in Judah. Around Jerusalem, and Uzziah was a fairly godly king. The Bible tells us that he uh, he walked in the ways of the Lord for the most part, and for most of his reign, he had a long reign. It was very stable from a geopolitical standpoint. But the remarkable thing about Uzziah is that near the end of his reign, after the Lord had given him great peace and great success, he made a critical error. He went into the temple of the Lord. And he offered incense in the temple of the Lord. And, of course, the Lord had forbidden kings to do that. Anyone but the priest was forbidden from entering the temple. But Uzziah did anyway, and in his pride he was struck down by the Lord, and he had a kind of skin disease, a kind of leprosy that showed the judgment of God on him. And so Uzziah, on the one hand, is, is portrayed as a, as, a, as a good and godly man, but, but on the other hand, at, at this moment, uh, when, when he should have really been entering his, his time of greatest obedience, he falls in his pride and is judged for it. Now, the second king that's mentioned in verse 1 is Jotham. And you see up here on the slide, I have the, the, re, the rough years when these kings reigned. Uzziah reigned for quite a long time, about 27 years. Jotham reigned for a little shorter time, about 15 years, but still a substantial amount of time. What we read about Jotham is that Jotham, in, in the scriptures, it tells us in, in 2 Kings 15 and in 2 Chronicles 27... That Jotham also, like Uzziah, was a, a godly king for the most part. One of the things that it says about Jotham is that during his reign, he fortified the cities of Judah. And that tells us a little bit of what was going on at the time. There were these great threats that the people of Judah felt. And so Jotham concerned himself most of the time with fortifying these cities. One of the things that it says about Jotham, although he walked in the ways of the Lord for the most part. One of the things it tells us about Jotham is that Jotham, while he himself worshipped the Lord, nonetheless he did not remove the high places. And this becomes a snare for the people of Israel. Jotham provided a good example of godly worship, but he didn't do all that he could to remove the ungodly pagan practices from the people of Egypt, or from the people of Judah, now that that then takes hold and grips the people under the reign of Ahaz, this next king, and you'll notice that he reigned for about twenty years. What we read about Ahaz was that Ahaz was a very ungodly king. In fact, the Bible tells us that Ahaz, among other things, offered one of his sons in the fire, a, a, a pagan, a horrible pagan practice, um, he, he, was, uh, he made an alliance with the king of Assyria and sought to protect Judah in that way. And in all kinds of ways, it wasn't just that he failed to tear down the high places, he was actually building and supporting the, the, the pagan worship that was going on in the surrounding nations. And so the Lord has a lot to say about it. Has, you might remember, though, that it's in Isaiah chapter 7, that, uh, that wonderful chapter that predicts the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin will conceive and bear a child, that, that prophecy is given to Ahaz. Isaiah, you'll remember in Isaiah 7, comes to Ahaz, that, that wicked king, and says, you, you shouldn't be concerned about these enemies around you. Ask for a sign, and the Lord will give you a sign that will show that he'll protect Judah. And Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He says, I'm not going to ask. And, and Isaiah says, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And of course, Matthew in his gospel recognizes that for what it is, which is a, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In any case, the fourth king that we have, and Isaiah prophesied during portions of the reign of each of these kings, is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is really one of the great kings in the nation of Judah. He's godly, he walks after the pattern of his father David, the text tells us, but more importantly, he follows the word of God. He tears down high places, he institutes biblical worship. He, uh, when he is tested with these enemies that were surrounding the nations, or the nation of Judah, he, he stands up and, and for the most part is very faithful to the Lord. Now there are a couple of places where Hezekiah uh, flags a little bit in his faith where it's clear that he's trusting in something or someone other than the Lord, namely, at one point, his own wealth. But but nonetheless, Hezekiah is good and godly, and when confronted with these tremendous military challenges, one of the the great things about the example of Hezekiah is Hezekiah seemingly instantly, when he's confronted with a challenge, goes into the house of the Lord and and bows down and prays and, and goes to Isaiah and asks for biblical counsel and wisdom. So Hezekiah is... Is a wonderful example of many things, of leadership and all kinds of uh, godly fruit of the Spirit. But he's also an example of a man who, who immediately flees to the Lord when he's, when he's in distress. Now, that's an overview of the four kings um, in, during whose reigns uh, Isaiah ministered. Now, there's something else, and there's a reason why I put the map up here on the screen Because I want you to see something about Judah during this time. If you see, Judah is uh, just below Israel, right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And one of the things that might not be obvious from, from the map, although these arrows attempt to make it obvious, is that Judah was really caught in the middle between the great world empires of their day. So if you think about it, up where it says Assyria and Babylonia, that whole area, there are often great powers that arise. You have the Babylonians who arise, and then the Assyrians who arise, and then the Neo-Babylonian Empire which arises. And all of these empires are are constantly gaining in strength and in, in, in wealth and in military power and their ability to project power. And then, and then down to the south, you'll notice Egypt. And you don't have to even know your Old Testament to know that Egypt is one of the great world empires in the ancient world. And so what you have is that the Lord placed His people in a land that was the land really between these two great powers. If you wanted to go from the area of Assyria, the Tigris and Euphrates, if you wanted to go down to Egypt either on a military expedition or even in terms of trade or anything like that, if you wanted to do that, you had to go through Israel and Judah. And similarly, if you're in Egypt and you want to project power or you want to grow in any way, you've got to go right up through Judah and Israel. So there is a sense in which if you've ever in your life felt like you were, we, we would say, we're between a rock and a hard place, or you feel like you're kind of out of options and, and and the room is closing in on you. Well, from a geographic perspective, and from a political and military perspective, that's exactly where God placed his people. And it's where he intended them to be all the time, and certainly during the time of Isaiah's reign. So there's a sense in which everything that happens with these four kings is set against the backdrop of this looming power in the north, which at times is extremely aggressive, and then this looming power in the south, this great world empire of Egypt. And the question that each of these kings is answering in his own life as he rules over his people is, In will I trust the Lord in the midst of these circumstances? Now, here's an interesting thing about the period of time that these kings reign. While there's always pressure, and and particularly with Hezekiah, there's tremendous pressure. The Assyrians are right outside the wall. But but apart from Hezekiah, while there's always pressure, many of these kings lived during eras where there was relative peace, both to the north and and to the south. They would hear rumors of things that were happening. And they would get concerned about them. And Isaiah addresses that. Why are you concerned about this? You shouldn't be worried about it. But, but nonetheless, uh, more or less, there was relative peace. But what Isaiah puts his finger on is this. Even in the times where, where there's not acute danger on either side, one of the sins that the people are consistently rebuked for committing... Is their failure to worship the Lord as He is commanded, to be, commanded them to worship Him? So look at Isaiah chapter 1, just as an example. In Isaiah chapter 1, we're introduced to Isaiah, we're introduced to the time period in which he's ministering. And the Lord begins this book with a with a condemnation, with a kind of judgment. Against the people. And here's what he says. I'll read just a few verses. I'll try to let you know where I am. Um, Beginning in verse 3 The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now look at how the Lord describes them a little later on in the chapter. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He puts them in the same category as that wicked city. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to you. To me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, this, this was written at a time when Assyria wasn't right on the doorstep, when Babylon wasn't about to take them over, when they weren't faced with that question Will you trust me? No, instead, this is written during a period of relative peace. But even during the time of relative peace, what the Lord says through Isaiah is that your worship is an abomination to me. And as we read on through the book of Isaiah, that's one of the great lessons that Isaiah teaches. That's one of the great lessons that Isaiah drives home. How concerned the Lord is for that he be worshipped rightly. You know, one of the phrases that's used of the Lord most in Isaiah. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 6. We saw it here in Isaiah chapter 1, if you were, if you were um, paying attention. Uh, the Lord is called the Holy One of Israel over and over and over again. In fact, that, that phrase is used uh, over 25 times in Isaiah, and it's only used six other times in the whole rest of the Bible. And, and so this is what Isaiah is, is fixated on proclaiming to the people. Don't you realize that God is the Holy One. He's the one who is deserving of the kind of worship that He has commanded. And it's because of your vain worship, first and foremost, that you're going to be judged by Him. And then when you are judged by Him, when those walls are closing in, the only solution is for you to trust in Him, turn to Him in repentance, and have faith in Him. Now, as we see in in the rest of Isaiah chapter 1 i want you to just sort of see where the argument goes here here's what the lord then says to them in the midst of their uh false worship verse 18 come now let us reason together says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow they are red, though they are red like crimson they shall become like wool If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then he goes on to characterize them in this way. In verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her. But now murderers. Now, if you turn, that's, that's the beginning of the book. Even when things are going well, they're failing to worship him. And the Lord says, repent, come to me. Your sins are like scarlet, but I can make them as white as snow. And the status of them right now is like Sodom and Gomorrah. But look at the end of the book. If you keep your hand in, in Isaiah chapter 1, I want you to turn to uh, the end, to Isaiah chapter 66. In Isaiah 66, here's how it ends. The city began being characterized in the way that you just read. But here's what he says at the end. Isaiah 66, 12. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. So, the question that we immediately confront when we come to Isaiah. First of all, we ask the question about the historical context. What was going on? Then we ask the question of what, what, what was the status of the people? What were they doing? What was their mindset like? And Isaiah makes that clear. And then, then we have to ask the question about the, the arc of the whole book. Where does it go? And, and where it begins is with God's condemnation of his people. That Jerusalem is utterly desolate in his sight, and even the things that they think are pleasing to him are a, a stench to his nostrils. But then we have the end. And in the end, what Isaiah gives is this glorious picture of a renewed city and people whose hearts are changed and whose sins are washed away. So we have to ask the question how, did, how does Isaiah take us on that journey from that point of condemnation at the beginning? to that glorious restoration at the end. And that brings us into the kind of outline of the book, the overall outline of the book of Isaiah. And I want to just very briefly give the broadest of possible outlines of this book and, and, and just to show you the movement, how we get from, from chapter 1 to chapter 66. Isaiah is broken up into almost these three horizons. You know, when you look off into the distance, you can see, you can see a horizon in the distance. And sometimes it's obscured and sometimes it's very clear. And depending on the terrain and depending on the light and depending on your own ability to see, uh, Isaiah has these three horizons in view and he kind of, he switches from one to the next as the book progresses. The first horizon is in the first 39 chapters. And what he really focuses in on there, is the specific situation that those people in Judah under those four kings uh, are experiencing. So the 8th century, the 700s BC, what is going on in Judah at that time? Isaiah addresses that in, in remarkable detail in the first 39 chapters. And we read a little bit of that in chapter 1, and I alluded to it in chapter 6, and, and, and in chapter 7 when I talked about Ahaz and the virgin birth. So all, all of that takes place in, in that horizon. But then as we get a, a, a little over halfway through the book, the horizon extends. And what Isaiah deals with then is what's going, what it's going to be like for them in the midst of the Babylonian exile because because of Israel's sin because of the sin of God's people Isaiah tells them you're going to be carried off into exile and then in chapter 40 it's it's a done deal and 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 he sort and he and he tries to uh, preach to them as if they're in that exilic circumstance. He tells them what's going to happen. He tells them how God's ultimately going to rescue them and bring them out of the exile, but also how they're supposed to live in the midst of the exile. And then, finally, he extends this horizon even further, and he, he takes a broad look at how people are supposed to live in the time between the promises of God and their fulfillment. Think about this. Think about how applicable this is even to our own day. We, like the first years of Isaiah, we have a lot of things in common. One of the things we have in common is that God has given us many great promises about the future. Some of the ones that Isaiah gave to the people have already been fulfilled. But but we, like they, they, have many promises that are given to us, and yet we're in this time between promise and fulfillment. And so in these last 10 chapters, what Isaiah does is he speaks broadly about how God's people are supposed to live between promise and fulfillment. It's very applicable to us today. Now, within those first 39 chapters, and this is where we're going to drill down into the section that we've reached in the class. Within those first 39 chapters, it breaks down like this. Um, We have, first of all, a broad message in chapters 1 through 12. And remember, uh, this is just a little aside, but it's important when you're in Isaiah or in many books of the Bible. You know, I I mentioned that Isaiah chapter 6 is the beginning of Isaiah's ministry, and yet uh, the book doesn't start with that, that account. It doesn't start with the call of Isaiah. We don't get the call of Isaiah until we're five chapters in. And, and when you see that, you have to ask a question, you have to realize that it's not, it's not intending to give you everything in chronological sequence. And so if it's not intending to give you everything in chronological sequence, well what is it intending to do? And that's where you have to focus in on the themes and the theology that are being driven home as the, as the argument develops in the first 12 chapters. Remember, in chapter 6, it's the, the last just after Uzziah's death, and then in chapter 7, we're all the way in the time of Ahaz. And so it's not chronological, but it is thematic. And in chapters 1 through 12, we get the broad themes laid out for us of the book of Isaiah. In the next uh, number of chapters, from 13 to 35, we have a series of oracles against the nations, and woes against the nations. And if you read commentaries on Isaiah, commentators struggle with how this fits into the argument of the book. It's not it's probably the least familiar part of the book of Isaiah. We know some of the stories in 1 through 12, we know some of the servant songs in, in the latter chapters 40 to 55, and we may even know a few th- phrases from Isaiah 56 to 66, but but the, this section in the middle is it's uh, is hard to piece together. and We've actually spent a lot of time on it in Sunday school. And then 36 through 39, you get this specific example of Hezekiah before his horizon shifts to the time of the Babylonian exile. Well, in the midst of this, um, what kind of applications are, are, are drawn out? And I want to talk about a few of them and then, and then zero in on one of the oracles against the nations. Well, the first thing that we see... In, in all of the book of Isaiah, I've mentioned worship already, and so I won't touch on that again, but the first thing we see in, in all of Isaiah is that Isaiah consistently rebukes the people not only for their failure to worship him rightly, but for their pride. It was a symptom of them as a nation, and it was certainly a symptom of each of the leaders that they had uh, over them. Look, for instance, at uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 puts it this way, the Lord says in verse 12 of chapter 2, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And then in verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah puts it this way, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? The Holy One of Israel demands that he be worshipped in the way that he's prescribed. But the Holy One of Israel also demands that people turn away from trusting in themselves and even turn away from trusting in other great men. It's, it's God, the Holy One of Israel alone, who's at work bringing about his sovereign plan. It's God and God alone who can protect them and who has promised to protect them. It's God and God alone who's going to destroy the enemies of his people. And so again and again, one of the themes of Isaiah is that the root of all of your disobedience is pride. That's why in Isaiah 66, at the end, right before that glorious restoration... The Lord says, to this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. It's why in Isaiah chapter 6, we see the mark of Isaiah's ministry when he's confronted with the Holy One, seated on the throne, and the angels, as you know, are saying, holy, holy, holy. And What does Isaiah say? He says, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. One of the clear themes of the book of Isaiah is that pride is at the root of so much of our sin and rebellion against the Lord. And pride is also at the root of our anxiety about the circumstances into which God has placed us. Because it's as we're looking to ourselves or looking to others and lacking confidence in those solutions that we see the symptoms of our pride played out and what the Lord says is, trust in me and trust in me alone. One of the questions that Isaiah confronts us with is this question. How In what ways are we, even today, lifted up against the Lord? Are, are, are you more like Hezekiah when, when some kind of circumstances begin to close in on you? Do you immediately go to the Lord in prayer or are you looking to yourself and looking to others and trying to manipulate and solve the problem on your own? Well, Isaiah says this is a symptom of pride. Are you, uh, are you worshiping God in a way that is according to the inventions of your own mind or according to what he has said? Again, a symptom of pride. So that's one of the things that Isaiah confronts us with. The second thing that Isaiah confronts us with is, and it's closely related to the notion of pride, but the the notion of of trusting in the Lord, of of what we would say, faith alone. Look, for instance, I've mentioned it already, but at Isaiah chapter 7, this confrontation with Ahaz, that wicked king. What Isaiah ultimately says to Ahaz is this, and some commentators even say that this phrase is a good summary of applying the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah. Here's what he says at the end of Isaiah 7, 9. After confronting him with his disobedience, with his lack of faith, he says this, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, what Isaiah seems to be saying both to Ahaz and to all of us is that our relationship with the Lord begins and ends with whether or not we're trusting Him, or whether or not our faith is actually in Him. And what Isaiah says to Ahaz in his particular situation is, if you're not believing in the Lord, if you're not trusting in Him, if you're not firm in your faith, then you're not going to stand at all. And This is the kind of thing that the book of Hebrews tells us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Isaiah drives that home as well. So pride is our great enemy, and faith in God is what we're consistently called to in the circumstances of our life. And that faith in God takes a particular shape in the book of Isaiah. And this is why I think Isaiah is so beloved by so many Christians. Isaiah has been called by some the fifth gospel. And the reason why it's called that is because there's so much a detail in the book of Isaiah, about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, about the ministry of God's Messiah. And that starts right at the beginning. Because when Isaiah confronts Ahaz and says, what you need is faith, then he goes on to tell him about the Lord's provision of a Messiah, of this Emmanuel. And you remember in chapter 9, Isaiah goes on to say that the government will rest on his shoulders his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's called, in, in chapter 11, the branch, God's branch. And then you remember all those wonderful songs later on in, in that second section of Isaiah uh, where he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. And, 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 and the, the text tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's no room for pride, according to Isaiah. And the alternative to pride has to be trust in the Lord. And specifically, not just trust in the Lord in a general sense in the midst of life's uncertainties, but specifically a focused and intensive trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the promised Messiah, in the servant of the Lord, in the branch, in the one born of a virgin who's described in this book. Now let's just look at one very quick example of something that we were just looking at in class. That's an overview of some of the big themes. But let's just look at one example. I mentioned that there are these oracles in the, the, at the beginning of the book, the first section of the book, beginning in chapter 13, and they're, they're mysterious in many respects. Because it seems as if Isaiah should be addressing Judah. And all of a sudden he switches his focus and addresses all these other nations. Well, there's a reason for it, and I think the reason becomes fairly obvious once you look at it carefully. Isaiah's first set of woes begins with Babylon and Assyria, and then ends with Egypt. Now, if you see the map, you remember why that's significant. Because what Isaiah is going to do is he's going to move sequentially through the greatest threats to the nation of Judah at this time. And he's going to show how God condemns them in the same way that he condemns Judah. So look, for instance, at what he says to Babylon in verses 6 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 13. "'Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt.'" They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Behold, their faces will be aflame. And the Lord describes why it is that Babylon will be judged in that way. And what it comes down to when you read through the whole of the oracle is it's because of their pride. And so if you think about this, if you're listening to this sermon in Judah in the 700s, and it's a sermon about Babylon... You should be seeing yourself in it. You should be saying to yourself, in what ways are we as a people, just like the Babylonians, puffed up in pride? And what does that mean for us as a people? The Lord's already told us that we're a proud people, and now we're seeing it reflected in the Babylonians themselves. And then it ends... And there's there's an oracle against uh, Assyria as well because of the same thing. And then it ends, as I mentioned, with this oracle against Egypt. And we'll we'll stop here and and just make some final comments. In chapter 19 uh, of the book of Isaiah, he has this um, oracle against Egypt. And if, if Assyria and Babylon were condemned for their pride, Egypt is condemned because of their idolatry. Look at Isaiah 19, beginning in verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And again, you're sitting there as someone in Judah in the 8th century B.C., or you're sitting there as someone right here in Greenville in the 21st century And you're reading it as a condemnation of Egypt, that great enemy of God's people. And you see God working out His purposes and judgment, but you're also seeing something else. You should be asking yourself the question, in what way am I falling into the same kinds of sins that the Egyptians themselves were condemned for? What is it that I'm trusting in? What is it that I'm putting in front of the Lord as a kind of idol? Because what the Lord says to them is what the Lord says to all people that He'll destroy their idols in front of them. Now, the last thing I'll mention is this, and this is brought out in the oracles and the woes and really in the whole book of Isaiah. One of the other wonderful things about the book of Isaiah, we've talked about its focus on worship, its, its condemnation of pride, its, its exaltation of faith alone in Christ alone. There's one other thing that we see in Isaiah that's distinctive, that gets picked up over and over again in the New Testament, and that's this. And this is, I think, part of the reason for these oracles against the nations is because what we see in Isaiah is that God's purpose was never just about the people sitting in front of him. It was always about the world. What Isaiah says to the people of Judah is that God is going to judge you, but his ultimate purpose is involved not just restoring you, but restoring all nations. And so what we see in this uh, section of, of the text is how God's at work, not just among the people we would expect Him to be at work among, but among all people. And one of the best ways in which we see this played out, I think, is in Romans chapter 10. I'll read these verses to you, but I think they'll be familiar. I hope they'll be familiar to you. In Romans 10, Paul makes an argument that I hope will be familiar, beginning in verse 11. He says this, For the Scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul goes on to say this How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? that series of paragraphs is this. Again, I hope it's very familiar theology to you, the necessity of preaching, the necessity of preaching Christ, the necessity of, of faith and how faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. But the striking thing about this, and you'll find this throughout the New Testament, is that all of Paul's quotations there are are in a sense, interwoven from the book of Isaiah. He takes a portion of Isaiah 28. He takes a portion of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and weaves them together. What we see in the New Testament is that in order to even understand what the Bible teaches about Christ and what the Bible teaches about proclaiming Christ and what the Bible teaches about proclaiming Christ to all the nations, what the apostles consistently do is they go to this book, this book of Isaiah, so there, is, uh, there, there are tremendous riches in here for us. Uh, there's personal application, there, there's societal critique, there's a, there's a whole philosophy of history, a theology of history that God gives us through this book. And there's also this clear call, uh, this, this call that highlights faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, And and, and the Bible alone is what's proclaimed in order to bring people to that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word. These riches are boundless, really. We can only scratch the surface, and we can hardly even do that. But we ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would cause these things to sink deep into our hearts, and that you would, by your Spirit, provoke in us a spirit of meditation on your word. Thank you for the privilege of having your word and for all that it teaches us. Be with us now as many of us are going to worship you. May our worship indeed be pleasing in your sight. Worship in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.